Good evening, and thank you, Kevin. We are looking tonight at Exodus and chapters 21, 22, and the first 19 verses of chapter 23. Now, this is this is a big passage of scripture. 86 verses in total, and uh, they are full of rules, 78, 79 rules, give or take, and uh, it's probably not a sort of in the best, best interest of time, or best use of time to read it all. So what I plan to do um, tonight is to just to orientate ourselves a bit in the book of Exodus and in the law. Um, I'm going to suggest a structure for th- this passage we have before us. Then we're going to read some extracts from it with a few comments and applications. And then finally, we are going to just uh, draw on three or draw three themes um, out of these uh, chapters. So we are going to read later on, we're not going to read at the the very beginning, but just to orientate ourselves a little bit in in where we are in in the book of Exodus. Um, This was an outline that Ian Lewis gave a, a few weeks or months ago probably now. Um, The first part of Exodus is about a God who delivers, a God who delivers. And then the middle section of Exodus is about a God who demands, verses uh, chapters 19 to 24, and that's where we are in the middle of tonight. And then the last section of Exodus is about a God who dwells. So we're in this middle section and um, we can look at it like this, camping around Sinai and that's where we are today. We are camped at Mount Sinai Um, in chapter 20, which Paul spoke on last week, we have the Ten Commandments given. Uh, In the passage we have before us uh, tonight, we have the Book of the Covenant. And I'll talk a little bit more about what that means. And then in chapter 24, we have the Covenant uh, being confirmed. Now, this, this passage is it's all about the law of Moses. And I suspect that this might be the first time that you have heard a message on Exodus chapter 21 uh, and 22 and 23, quite possibly. And it might well be that this tonight will be the very first time that you're reading from this portion of Scripture. So I thought it would be good just to give an overview of um, the law of Moses 
and what we mean by that. The Hebrew term for the law of Moses is uh, Torah. And the most prominent uh, use of that word or uh, in, in the scriptures is that it constitutes the first five books in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, as we call it. And you may think of references in the New Testament. For example, uh, it says of the Lord Jesus in chapter 24 of Luke, that he said that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, when the Lord Jesus used that, the law of Moses, he was referring to the Pentateuch. And that's how um, the Jews divided up the Old Testament. It was the law, it was the prophets, and it was the Psalms. And the term the law is even used referring to the whole of the Old Testament. So, for example, in, in John chapter 10 and verse 34, Jesus quoted from Psalm 82. And he says, is it not written in your law? I say you are God's. So he was referring to Psalm 82 and he called it the law. So in a, in a bigger scale, the law was the entire Old Testament. But tonight we are thinking about a sort of a narrower definition of the law. We are thinking about the rules and the regulations that God gave to Israel at Sinai, at Mount Sinai. The covenant at Sinai, if, if you like. And it begins here in, in Exodus chapter 20 and it runs right through in, on, until we get into Numbers chapter 10. Now there are some narrative parts of scripture in there. For example, Exodus chapter 32, we have the golden calf and, and so on. But generally speaking, the law of Moses, the covenant of Sinai, is from Exodus chapter 20 to Numbers uh, chapter 10. And according to Jewish tradition, there were 613 laws given at Sinai, 613. And one rabbi, he split these into 365 prohibitions, one for each day of the year, and 248 commands. And he suggested there was one for each part of the human body. Now, don't know about anatomy, and I'm not sure how many parts there are to the body, but that's, that was his suggestion. But we're not going to look at the law of Moses in, in, in that sort of sense. In how, but broadly speaking, there are three parts to the law. And last Sunday, we looked at the, the foundation of the law. The, the most basic of 
the law. And that is the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it's referred to, you might have come across the word, the Decalogue, which literally means the Ten Words. And that is how it is referred to in, in the Bible. For example, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 13, it says, And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And if you have an ESV, the footnote will say words, the Ten Words. So we have the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And it is quoted verbatim in Deuteronomy chapter 5 as well. And this is the foundation of the covenant. And the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, uh, and the Ten Commandments in it are what we might call apodictic. That might be a new word for you. It was a new word for me. It basically means that they are statements of absolute and unconditional demands or prohibitions. Some Christians think that they are timeless laws of God. But as we move into the passage we have before us um, tonight, we are moving to what the Bible refers to the book of the covenant. If you turn over a couple of pages to chapter 24 of Exodus and verse 7, It says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. The book of the covenant. And that really is the passage that we have before us tonight. And some some. Think of it, and we can think of it tonight as an application of the Decalogue, an application of the apodictic commands. So this is now sort of case law, if you like. Um, So it's not sort of absolute statements by God, you shall not lie, you shall not murder, but it's more like, Stating that in the, in, the, in the event that X happens, you must do Y. So, for example, if you lend money, you must not exact interest. Now, that's a different kind of law than the Ten Commandments. Casuistic, if you want to know the, the technical term for that. It's case law. I don't think it's meant to be exhaustive. It's not an exhaustive list of commands. It's an illustrative list of commands. So, for example, in chapter 22, we read that if your enemy's ox or, or, um, or donkey goes astray, you should go after it. Now, I don't think that's to mean that if it's a horse, you don't need to bother. It's an illustrative case law. 
um, and it's not meant to be exhaustive. So that's the book of the covenant. It's the Ten Commandments applied. And then what we have from Exodus chapter 25 up to Numbers 10, we have stipulations with regards to the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices. We could call it the priestly law or the priestly code. So that's an overview of what we mean by the law of Moses. We've got the Decalogue, we've got the Book of the Covenant, and then we've got the Priestly Code. Now, we are dealing with that middle section tonight, which we call the law of, or, or the Book of the Covenant, which is that part of the law of Moses, or the Covenant at Sinai. Now, Another couple of things to say about the law, because the law maybe gets a lot of bad press, right? And there are perhaps two misconceptions uh, about the law that I want to to just briefly touch on before we go into it in, in more detail. The first misconception is this, that the law only required external conformity and didn't deal with the heart. Maybe that is a a misconception or or an idea that you have. And I would suggest to you that that is a misconception to say that the law only conformed or dealt with matters of external conformity and not with the heart. It is true that when we come to the New Testament and we, we come across the Pharisees, that here were people who only focused on the external matters of the law and external conformity to look good. But that's not true of the law itself. So, for example, I would say that the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods beside me, that is not external conformity. That's a matter of the heart. We look at the last of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet, that's most definitely a matter of the heart. And as we read tonight's passage as well, or parts of it, we clearly sense a spirit of compassion and a desire for justice and fairness. And that permeates through the whole law, the spirit of compassion for the weak and justice, and fairness. So the law does address the heart. It's the yearning that constitutes the trespass, not just the doing. The second misconception is that we think that the law that God gave the law to put people into bondage. Now, God had just delivered his people out of Egypt. So why would he put them back into bondage by giving them the law? That, that That doesn't make sense. And it's interesting if, if we... You don't need to turn to it. I'll read this. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 4. And Moses says this. 
Listen to this. This is very interesting. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And then verse 8 of Deuteronomy chapter 4. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? What nation, what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law? And that was the case, that when God gave Israel the Mosaic law, he lifted Israel up to a status that was far higher than any of the nations, any of the surrounding nations, that were ruled by despots and tyranny, and there was no rule of law. And in fact, you could argue that the reason for why we have the rule of law, which is a good thing, by the way, in this country and in this part of the world, is because our society has been based on the Judeo-Christian principles of law and order. So, God didn't give the law to punish his people. He gave the law to protect his people. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 14, Moses says, Keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I'm giving you today for your own good. Keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord that I'm giving you today for your own good. It was not for their, to make their life miserable. It was to make their life good. And so we listen to the psalmists and we come to Psalm 1 and he says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is where? It's in the law of the Lord. It's in the law of the Lord. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Even when we come to the New Testament, we hear Paul and he says this in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. So let's um, have a high view of the law of Moses. But of course, we recognize its limitations. Because while the law is good, and was good, and it showed people who God really was and how they were to live the better life, it couldn't save them. It couldn't make them right with God. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, just after he said that the law is good, 
he says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son. God has done what the law could not do weakened by the flesh by sending his own son. So the law was good. The law was holy. But the law had limitations because it couldn't save. And God has done what the law could not do. So that's just a, a very long preamble to our um, passage tonight. Now, I'm not finished actually with the preamble because I'm going to do an outline now. <laughs> and then we're going to read a little bit. So I'm going to suggest a structure to this. And I'm, I've copied completely from Alec Mottier who is uh, a Hebrew scholar and written an excellent commentary. And he's suggesting this chiastic structure. Now, that's another um, word that might be new to you. <laughs> if you're playing Scrabble this summer in the holidays, and you've got some good words to use there. So you can thank me later. Now, chiastic, it comes from a Greek letter, which is, X, which is pronounced k, like loch, and um, uh, a chiastic structure divides something into two, where the first half, where, sorry, where the second half of a statement or a passage is the first half in reverse order. So I'll, I'll give you an example from today, uh, uh, today's statement. Um, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's a chiastic statement. When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. You end up back where you started. Or if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. That's a chiastic um, statement. Now, here's a... And, and a lot of the Old Testament, those who are experts in it, would say that a lot of the literature in the Old Testament is chiastic it's and and this is this is you'll see it it might become clear when i when i actually show what i mean and really the book of the covenant starts in in verse 22 of chapter 20 and it finishes uh verse 19 of chapter 23 and it starts with this it starts with god coming to his people at the altar and then we have the ordering of the household and the care of slaves. And then we have capital charges. And then we have the middle section, which is responsibility for property and family. Now that's the first half and ends up in this middle section there. And then we go back in, in, in reverse gear, if you like. And we come to capital charges, religious ordering of relationships in light of former slavery. And then we come to the epilogue, um, which you can see is a, a sort of mirror image of the prologue. The people come to God in the feasts. So this is 
a, a suggested structure um, for our passage tonight. And I, I do thank you for your patience because we are now going to read a section of the passage itself. I'm just going to read a few verses. The verse I'm going to read are on that overhead, if you can see that. And I'm going to try to read uh, an extract of the verses of each of the sections, um, not corresponding entirely to Alec Mottier's structure, but dealing with them in, in sort of themes, if you like. So let's read then from Exodus chapter 20, verse 22 to 24. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to, re to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. I just want you to notice that last phrase that we read as the beginning of the book of the covenant. I will come to you and bless you. Now, what was the meeting place that God would come to? It was the altar. And that's where God meets us as well, at the altar. I have been at the altar and witnessed the lamb burnt holy to ashes for me. And that's where we meet God. And that's where he met his people. Chapter 21, and we'll read the first six verses there. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes to you, sorry, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. It's difficult to read these verses without thinking about the sort of Caribbean style of slavery that we might be more familiar with in, in more recent times in history. And it's worth noting that in Hebrew, there weren't separate words for a servant and a slave. And it probably is more appropriate to think about these verses describing servanthood, or at least what we might call debt 
servitude, where a person works to repay a debt. And we notice here that that period should be a maximum of six years, unless the slave voluntarily decided to stay with his master. Turn to verse 12. We're now looking at violence and capital punishment. Verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. That's a reference to the cities of refuge, which will come later in the, in the law. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Just a brief comment on this. God values human life. And there is capital punishment for when a human life is taken deliberately. Not when it's not deliberate, but when it's deliberate. And we see that. And we see this um, kind of poetic kind of way of stating that what the judgment should be. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and so on. And, and we, we sometimes think of this as an expression of savagery. You know, that this is something which is outrageous. But what, what it actually meant was that the punishment should match the crime. No more and no less. There have been times in this country, not recent, but there have been times in this country when someone was hanged for stealing sheep. That's not. That's going way beyond what this says. I suspect, or in my view, the punishment maybe is too lenient. That's the way that we have moved. But an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is just a way of saying that the punishment should be commensurate with the crime. Now, you may remember that Jesus referred to this verse. And he said, uh, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a, a, a tooth for tooth. But I say to you that if... If you, are, if you are hit on the cheek, then you turn the other. Now, in a way, Jesus wasn't really setting this principle aside. But he was saying that this is not to be applied for personal retaliation. And it never was the intended use of that. Notice in verse 22... It says, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So he was referring to the judicial system. 
and that um, punishment should be uh, commensurate with the crime. Now, I think we're going to have to move on uh, very quickly because otherwise we'll completely run out of time. Let's turn to verse 21 of chapter 22. We're skipping a, a large section here. I appreciate that for, for the sake of time. Verse 21 of chapter 22. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. And here we have instructions for compassion. And justice for the weak, the sojourner, and the fatherless. The treatment of these people should be shaped by the fact, the law is saying, that Israel too had been sojourners in Egypt. And God, and based on the character of God, because God is a compassionate God, And we remember that these things apply to us as well. Because James says this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. That you visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. So we see how compassion and sensitivity and care to those who are likely to be mistreated or in society, ignored in society, looms large in the law of Moses. And this is this sort of permeates the whole law, compassion for the weak. And it's rooted in the fact that God is a compassionate God And it's rooted in Israel's own experience of slavery and delivery by God from slavery. Verse 4 of chapter 23. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden... You shall refrain from leaving him with you. You shall rescue it with him. Here we have laws about loving your enemy. Now that might surprise us. 
You may remember again thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord referred, or, or the Lord said this, you have heard it says. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you. Now, when the Lord Jesus was saying that, he was not correcting the law. He was correcting misconceptions and misapplications of the law. Because the law never said, hate your enemy and love your neighbor. And we see that here. If your enemy's ox, that's the one that you hate, if, if you don't like someone, your enemy, and his ox or donkey go astray, you shall bring him back. And if the one who hates you, in reciprocal, uh, if you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under his burden, you shall refrain from leaving it with him. You shall rescue it with him. So, so we see that the law has a very high standard. Not just love your, en- lo- love your neighbor, it's loving your enemies as well. <clears throat> the next section, verses 6 to 9, again deal with justice for the poor. And we realize how important that is to God. And then we come to verse 10 to 12, which really is an application of the fourth commandment. <clears throat> for six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. When I read this, I'm reminded of what the Lord Jesus said about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's a chiasm, by the way. The Sabbath was for man, not man for the Sabbath. Um, And that's what really these verses bring out. What was the purpose of? Of the Sabbath. It wasn't to have lots of rules and regulations like the Pharisees had made up. But it was so that the poor might be looked after and that the workers may be refreshed. Reminds me of the need for rest. The need for rest. And Kevin, he gave me a book. He gave all the elders a book um, um, by Paul Mallard um, a couple of years ago, which I read, which I, I really enjoyed, Staying Fresh. And in that book, Paul Mallard refers to a saying that's attributed to a man called Christmas Evans from Wales. He said, it is better to burn out than to rust out in the service of the Lord. It is better to burn out than to rust out. And then Paul Mallard made the point, which I think is very important, and he was quoting somebody else, and who said this, I admire the bravado. It sounds dedicated and bold and stirring. However, 
When I view the burnouts and the almost burnouts who lie by the ecclesiastical road, the glory fails to reach me. I see pain and waste and unfinished service. Is there not a third alternative to either burning out or rusting out? In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul said this, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord has given me. Herein lies the model I choose to follow. I want to neither burn out nor to rust out. I want to finish the race. I like that. Now, how do we finish the race? Well, we need rest and we need refreshments. We need sleep. We need good food. We need exercise. We need rest. I know that sounds a bit life coachy, but that is scriptural. And that is built into the very law of Moses. So, we come to the end of the book of the covenant and verse 14 says this three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me and this sort of finishes the book of the covenant it started with God coming to the people and it finishes with the people coming to God so that's an overview uh, uh, and a reading of an e- some extracts. There are three principles that we can draw from this. Maybe there's, in fact, there's loads more. But God desires to meet his people. Just a simple principle, simple theme that we see here in the law of Moses. The law was not about God keeping his people at a distance. The law is actually about God meeting his people. And we see that in the altar at the start. And we see that in the feasts at the end. A third principle, a second principle or theme is that God is interested in every aspect of our lives. The topics and the areas covered in the book of the covenant are so diverse and are so comprehensive. It's about the household, injuries to animals and people, protection of property, finance and business, sex, humane concerns, civil and religious authorities, a timetable for work, Integrity and honesty, bribery, there's so many. And it reminds us that God desires and God directs every aspect of our lives. And he desires us to honour him in every aspect of life. We are not to compartmentalise and think, God, it doesn't really matter what I do here in this little corner at home or at work. God's laws apply to everything in our life. And the final 
theme that we can draw from this is compassion. God had an interest in the slaves. He had an interest in the widows and the fatherless and the refugees and the asylum seekers, if we can put the word sojourners into common parlance. And it permeates the whole law and surely it does as well as we see how the law is applied and used in the New Testament. And we've referred to one example in James chapter 1 and verse 27. So let's have a high view of the law and, and seek to apply the, these principles. You know, we are not, as, an, as a, a legal instrument, we are not bound by these laws as we thought of last week. But these laws and the law of Moses reveal the character of God. And they teach us what is important to God. And that should really shape our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the law of Moses that you gave through him to your people. And we think of how much we can learn from it. And Father, we do pray that you will help us. To, to learn from it as we have read it together tonight. We thank you we can spend time together today. We thank you that we can spend time together now as well, enjoying food and a time of singing. And we thank you for the food that you have provided. We thank you for the hands who have prepared it. And we pray that you will bless it to us and our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.